having a network, whether it's a peer network, whether it's mentors, having a nurturing network is key. And the biggest mistake that people make is feeling like that's something you earn the right to do when you're a 30-year-old SVP. Start soon. Allie McCartney is on a mission to get rid of the taboo of talking about money. And she does this by encouraging people to embrace uncomfortable conversations about the power dynamics of money, the role finances have in a relationship, and how taking the leap and investing can help you reach your goals. Now, a managing director at UBS, Allie has spent her career climbing the corporate ladder in a male-dominated field and has amassed a number of personal and professional lessons that she shares with us today. Coming up, you'll hear how she was born to be a financial psychologist, why she always thought there was a powerful relationship between money and behavior, her early days working at Lehman Brothers and being 24 in a male-dominated business the definition of financial feminism, and why this is such an important concept for Allie. Why having a money posse is essential. Getting rid of the taboo of talking about money and how Allie is achieving this. Financial Planning 101 with tips on building a financial plan that aligns with your goals. Three different ways you can get involved as a philanthropist. Being a self-taught extrovert and how she recharges during her time off the value of defining the things that energize you and the things that deplete you. And finally, the origins of classy, sassy, and a little bad-assy. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Hey, Entrepreneurista's, it's Stephanie here. I am so excited to share that we have a new way to get in touch. Send us a text to 561-468-3997 and be the first to know about our latest episodes, get access to exclusive deals, and text us any questions you have for us or upcoming guests. That's 561-468-3997. Drop us a text to say hello. We can't wait to connect with you. Allie, thank you so much for being here and joining us today over Zoom for our podcast recording. That's life these days. This is joining and meeting. Yes. This is it. You just go with the flow and and make things happen. I would love to hear a little bit about your career journey and what led you to your current business now. The, The truth is that I grew up in a family where I had very, very strong grandmothers. Both of them were educated in college, which was not something that was normally done for women. And both went through sort of significant hardship in order to make sure that happened. My grandmother, Frida, went back to actually medical school and became a professor of pharmacology and developed basically the technology that stopped making anesthesias blow up in the operating room when I was basically about time I was born. And so I always had these very strong women in the background. And then my mother did a not so different thing, which was she went to business school when I was about between 10 and 14. 
And so in this funny way, I have a father who's a Freudian psychiatrist. And so I grew up around that. And I wouldn't say like traditional talking about feelings, but sort of understanding and getting a window into why people do the things they do and, and sort of how to think about psychology and behavior and those type of issues, maybe sort of the softer skills. And I literally helped my mom study from the time I was 11 for what she was getting her MBA. And so sort of the, the big thing I joke about is that I was born to be a financial psychiatrist, which is ultimately a money manager, because I would say there is a great deal of what my team and I do that is on the IQ side and is super technical. But at the end of the day, you can only be as helpful to somebody as they're willing to open up and share about their fears and their goals. And that's especially true of women with connotations around money. So I think that's sort of what happened to me. And basically, you know, I think I started off life fairly similar to how most people do. You, you don't particularly know exactly what you want to do, but you start to get more and more self-aware. And I was always a relatively old soul. And I always thought there was this relationship between money and, and behavior. And I was pretty taken with it. And as someone who had you know, gone through the MBA with my mom, I just, it seemed like the thing to do. And then long story short, I, like many people, I think knew what I didn't want to do as opposed to what I did want to do. The year that I graduated college, the cool thing to do was to get a consulting job. I got a consulting job and I hated it. It was like the first year that real email was going on. And I was basically, uh, you know, the junior person for a lot of people in insurance consulting and, you know, talk about not having a job that involves relationships or EQ. It was, you know, all numbers and data entry. And my dad, like many good conscious Jewish dads said, okay, here's the deal. You can live at home and you can absolutely leave a job as long as you have another one. I was like, great, I have to find another one. And long story short, I ended up starting an internship with a local financial planner in Baltimore. And started as a couple days a week where it allowed me to quit this job that I hated and to have time and energy to apply to business schools. Because obviously in my mind, given what I'd seen my mom go through um, and what I experienced and lived by growing up, A, you need and prize education. And that's what gets you access to bigger and better things. And B, especially if you're a woman, then having those credentials can empower you. So I worked with Peter for probably about a year. I ended up going from being an intern to full-time, and I loved it. So Peter had a fascinating business, which I think in a weird way is why I've gotten to where I've gotten, which is at a time when most people were just simply like putting money into mutual funds or buying insurance products, he's a former South African tennis player and was from a family that was very active in anti-apartheid work in South Africa. And so he had this practice that was absolutely an investment practice, but it also involved helping this diaspora of South African apartheid fighters whose lives were at risk needing to get capital out of the country. And so it was my first experience in real finance and investment management already had in this way, this sort of like social impact. I mean, all these words that we now use, but sort of philanthropy, goals planning, social impact. It was much more robust than just saying like, you know, do you like stocks or bonds? So very long-winded way of, I sort of knew very young and then the things fell in, 
And I just happened to get to Wall Street at a time where it was right before the internet boom. And all of these banks were making, you know, these companies were going crazy. And the banks were starting to figure out that if we do a transaction for a bank, if we take pets.com or amazon.com public, then we get a lot of money in the form of one big fee. But if that money in turn makes individuals and entrepreneurs very wealthy, that money is not a sort of one-time shot. That's an opportunity to have annuitized, non-transactional relationships. And this was you know, early 2000, and that was really the beginning of the concept of private wealth, annuitized asset management, registered investment advisors. And so that was the beginning of, as my father has always told me, being in the right place, but maybe six months too late. <laughs> and then after you came to that realization, what did you do next? I was actually really lucky in that I started out of business school with Lehman Brothers. And it was a very, it still hadn't really caught up to where it is now or the level of sophistication. So it was still more like you were literally given a phone. I mean, talk about being an entrepreneur. It was sort of smile and dial. And here I was, I was, I was no bigger. I was no older. I was like 24 years old in a super male dominated business, like picking up the phone and trying to make a life for myself, which was as ridiculous as it sounded. But the thing that was fascinating was, and this, you know, I think we're going to talk about this in this podcast. But as I said, I always was an old soul. I always was much more, I had a facility for networking, for really building relationships, for listening to people and, and all this stuff that now seems sort of commonsensical of how you sell and how you build relationships. But it wasn't really talked about then. And it certainly wasn't talked about in finance. And so what happened to me that was really lucky, I think there is a lot of luck to it. There's also well, there are a whole host of things we can get into, but the long story short was I was at a firm, Lehman Brothers, which obviously had a very difficult end, but was a very, very meritocratic place. It was a firm that was started and at that point populated and energized largely by first generation wealth, first generation in school. And it was, it was scrappy. It was definitely super scrappy, but there was a real culture and a real soul to it. And so I was able to make a lot of relationships, many of which in retrospect were with older men who maybe saw something different in me, maybe didn't feel threatened by me in the same way they felt threatened by some of the, the people around me. And I had about a 10-year career at Lehman that was actually quite wonderful because it was a group of people who, it was a time where opportunities and changes in the industry of investment banking, of trading, of asset management were, it was going from a transactional male business to a annuitized relationship, long-term business. And so basically I was tapped for different roles, many of which I never would have thought I was qualified for or would have found on my own and really had this lovely 10-year experience of a survey of what life in an investment bank could look like and all the different parts, all the different jobs on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think one of the more important things for me was that I was, um, I ran a program for all of the managing directors of Lehman Brothers. And what was very impactful and, and sort of determinative of my career from that is that not surprisingly, 
there were 500 managing directors. One out of every 20 some maybe was a woman. And so when I would meet those women, I was constantly struck by how they'd gotten to where they were, their demeanor, their story, the way they treated money, which, and the way they invested often as, as mothers, which was very different than the way the 24 other people I would have seen before them did. And so it really sort of cemented all of my interests of you know, what now is called sort of financial feminism, being a financial feminist. But again, these didn't have names like back then. It was just, there's money, there's insurance, there's how to be successful on Wall Street, but there wasn't sort of this comment or this, people weren't talking yet about behavioral finance. People weren't talking about connotations or emotions or about money. It was still probably three or four years away from one of the major publications in my industry, The Power of the Purse, which said like, by the way, people, you know, the demographics of this country are changing. And you know how Wall Street is all about money and power and men advising men like, Someone's got to figure this out because by the year 2020, 60% of the wealth is going to be in the hands of women. And I was reading those pieces and I was fascinated by those pieces. And I had grown up in this family that had sort of nurtured that fascination. And it really wasn't till Wall Street where I was made to feel like I didn't belong there in any way, shape or form. What year was this now? So at this point, we're probably talking about 2003 to 2007, right? And so the good news is that not surprisingly, that was a huge boom, a expansion period in our economy, in the global economy. And so when there is a boom, right, all of these firms, you know, start to think about things like diversity, start to think about things like, you know, where the puck's going. And so, you know, I was sort of coming of age at a firm that was coming of age, at that time. And then what happened is the financial crisis happened. And not only did Lehman Brothers go out of business, but sort of all of those wonderful focuses on ramping women who had left the workforce and diversity on the trading floor and sort of a softer, kinder way to manage money just vanished for a bit. What is your point of view or how is your point of view different than, I guess, your male counterparts on how to invest money? I'm not sure that it has to do with the actual concept of how you invest money, right? I think it is the way in which you create a sustainable environment and a what one of my clients calls a safe place to talk about what money means to you, right? And so you can't start solving the problem or investing money if you're not willing to talk about the role that money has in power dynamics, the role that money has in opportunity, and the role that money has in relationships. That's relationships between children and parents, relationships between spouses. One of the interesting relationships that I constantly see is women and their fathers. And so if you're not able to talk about those things and you're not able to even listen to somebody talk about the things. And as one of my clients has said very publicly, provide a safe space to talk about all the ugly, taboo, uncomfortable parts of that, then you never even get to the investment point of view, right? And then I think the other thing that is really important, which is also a nuance, and again, as a, I'm not a therapist, 
this is just talking about sort of my practice and what I have seen and experienced. Um, and these are talking and alluding to generalities. But in general, my experience has been, and I will refer to a piece of, I guess you would call it a study that was done. So there was a study that was done that was given to, let's, it was a financial literacy test. It was given to about 100 men and 100 women. Everything about these men and women that could be sort of neutralized was. They were from same socioeconomic background. They had the same level of education. They were the same age. The results were as follows. The men, let's say, tested at about a C in terms of actual competency, in terms of a objective financial literacy test. However, when they were asked to rate their competence and comfort level in making financial decisions, they self-declared an A. Women, again, sort of same group, same education, same demographic background, tested, let's say, a B plus to A minus. And when asked to give that same self-assessment, assess themselves as a C, right? And so if one believes that you have to have a safe place and a feeling of comfort, which often has to do with education and familiarity, then that's what we have to get to, right? As a, as a group, as a culture, as a sort of demographic, is that we have to find a way to talk about money and we have to find a way to educate ourselves to the extent that we can feel comfortable making financial decisions. And it sounds really obvious, but I will tell you that that concept of having what I call a money posse, so people in your life, men and women, kids, people that you go to, that you trust, you know, it is as important for little girls as it is for many, honestly, 40-year-old women on Wall Street who also say to me very frequently, I know I should know more about this. I know I should have people to ask, but I don't. There is something in our culture that, stops us from doing what men have traditionally done, which is walk around and talk about how well they did in some trade at a golf course. And obviously, I'm sort of using that, you know, I'm being overly whatever alluding to it, but it's really, really important. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, education, socialization are the two most important things that are going to take us from where we are now, which is an industry that is mostly male, that is mostly built for, from a product, services, and people standpoint, mostly men, to where the numbers in this country tell us, which is more women are starting businesses than men. Women stand to inherit twice, once from their parents, once from their spouse. Divorce, and what we call gray-haired or silver-haired divorce, so divorce much later in life, when you have assets, is at an all-time high. Some would say over 50%. And women are, as we said, starting businesses, going to school. So the entrepreneurial and self-funded wealth is, you know, is overwhelming. And we, we have to find a way to put some construct around that and some safety net so that we can invest and invest earlier so that we don't harm ourselves, whether you make $100 a week or a million dollars a week that you are comfortable asking the questions and asking for the help. And there are people, they don't have to look and feel like me. They just have to provide, again, that education and that safe place for you to have the conversation and make decisions. 
For anyone looking for a financial advisor, and I actually am looking for one, what are some of the questions you would ask your your clients that might make them uncomfortable? That I might, or that I would expect them to ask me when they're looking for a financial advisor. That you would ask a potential client, or I guess once they've hired you, what are the things that you talk about that are not typically comfortable conversations to have? Well, look, so let's separate, let's separate their couple. So I do work a lot with people who have not traditionally had responsibility or access or education in money or investment, and then do, as I say, either find themselves divorced with a pot of money that makes them feel scared and uncomfortable because it's their safety and security and it's this finite number and there's no one else taking care of them and they have to get to a very different, more empowered place. Or what breaks my heart even more is someone in a situation where they've just lost a parent or a spouse. So it's a terribly emotional situation. It's one fraught with meaning and loss. And then, just like that divorcee, they all of a sudden have a sense of um, unmet responsibility they have to deal with. So that's one conversation. The next is, let's say, a professional like you who has come to the realization or you're trying to bring them to the realization that they have a real opportunity and responsibility to be more involved and instructive and deliberate with their wealth in order to build create, whether that's someone with $100 million, and so that's the legacy that they leave to their children or the world, or $100,000, and how do they plan so that their goals for their own children are met in terms of education, et cetera. So it is, it's very different, but I'll tell you the one thing that is similar is that for the first time we speak, the second time we speak, there's no conversation about investments or money, really. Honestly, the first thing that I will say is like, what are the words right now that you would use to describe this meeting, this pool of money, right? And oftentimes from women, the words that are used are words that have a negative connotation, right? It's anxiety, it's concern, it's discomfort, because it's the sense of responsibility that they haven't often been brought up to deal with. Whereas with men, oftentimes the words are, if you can go through that same discussion, opportunity, power, control, right? And so when you're talking about a difference that's that major, right? And this could be true whether it's two women, two men, you know, however, partners, business partners, right? You can't even talk about it until you're talking about the elephant in the room, which is how different it it is, right? And so one of the things I encourage is for, you know, before you're engaged, before you're married, to talk about these kind of things, right? To say, you know, there's some very basic questions, for example, that going on a dinner, having a money date, and the question of, does being the one that earns the money in a partnership, in a relationship, give you the right to determine how to spend the money or invest the money or not? One of the things, you know, with people that have come into money, whether it's through entrepreneurialism, whether it's through divorce, whether it's through inheritance, it's just like, again, what does this mean to you? What do you hope to do with it? How do you feel about charity and philanthropy? How do you feel about raising kids with wealth, right? Because the other fascinating thing to me that I learned at Lehman really quickly was you could walk into two offices on the same day with individuals that were the same age and had virtually the same balance sheet. And you could have two completely different discussions. 
So one of actually my earliest mentors who sadly passed away this year, who I've, I don't know what the appropriate term is, uh, followed, stalked, demanded time and attention from for at this point, 25 years. I remember the day I walked into her office. And as I said, she was one of the very few women I met. She was gorgeous and brilliant. And she had a corner office at Lehman Brothers, which, you know, her name was Chris. I was told I was going to meet a woman, a, a person named Chris. And I walked into Christine's office and I looked at Christine and I asked her the first question I asked every Lehman MD, which was, if God forbid you got hit by a bus tomorrow, what would you want to happen to your money? And she looked at me and she said, I'm not going to get hit by a bus. I'm going to live a nice long life. And I want my last check to bounce sky high because I made it and I'm spending it all. And I was sort of taken aback because I had never heard somebody be sort of that forthright with that. And especially never heard, you know, a woman say that. And, you know, at the same day, you met with somebody again that had that same balance sheet and their answer to that question, you know, if you got hit by a bus tomorrow, what would you hope would happen to your money? Well, you know, I was the first person in my family to get a college education and I want every penny to grow as much as possible so that there is as much intergenerational wealth so that my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids never have to go through what I went through, right? And that is a very different person and it's a very different investment portfolio, right? So you get so much information as a practitioner of finance from that. And so if you're not asking those questions, if you're just saying, what's your risk tolerance? And how would you feel if your portfolio is down 5%? How would you feel if the market was up 10%, but you were only up to? Like, for me, that kind of stuff is, it's really getting to know somebody. And that's why it's been so cool to be able to bring true philanthropy into my practice. Because when you can work with people and you can understand that all of those things can work together. Coming up, you'll hear the importance of getting rid of the stigma associated with talking about money and having those uncomfortable talks about how money impacts your relationships and dynamics, plus the importance of building a money posse. Allie, so I can share with you that growing up, I had no schooling on personal finance. It was not taught in elementary school, middle school, high school. I learned a little bit about finance in college due to some business courses, but personal finance really was not taught. So I can share that I graduated from college and had a credit card, didn't know that you have to pay the credit card off every single month or there's interest. Like this was not taught. I know you are so passionate about helping women and teaching women about their personal finance. What is being done to really change this narrative now and change the education system? And I know you're involved in, in a lot of this charitable work as well. Yeah. So it's such a great point. And your experience is the experience of most men and women in this country, right? When you think about it, we're taught geography and history, and we used to learn how to bake cakes while the boys went to shop, but we're not taught about balancing a budget, spending, credit cards, what really is a mortgage, what does home ownership mean? And that's, that's the beginning of the problem, right? So that's the beginning of if you aren't creating 
responsible people, how can you expect people to act responsibly, right? So part of that is the education, which we should be doing in primary school, right? Part of that is the ability to sit in a classroom as a seventh grader and have boys and girls talking about money together. And so any of that sort of negative feelings or taboo around talking about money doesn't exist. And part of it, look, I think you're part of the solution, quite frankly, which is that, you know, when I was growing up, the only way to consume information or media was to actually physically go to a class or read a book, right? And so in the absence of either of those, of going out and of your own volition, buying that book and making sure it's the right book for you or being taught it in school, you didn't have a lot of opportunity, right? Now you can listen to this podcast and you can then go to my website and you can then have resources or you can go onto LinkedIn and see 60 second, you know, thing about this is why everybody needs a bank account. And so I do think a lot of it, we're in a much better place in terms of that than we were a decade ago or two decades ago, but I don't understand still why it is not more widely disseminated and adopted. I think, you know, the one thing that I hear all the time in every survey I've ever seen on divorce, relationships, credit card debt, bankruptcy says is that both men and women in this country truly fundamentally believe that there will be no gender equality or gender equity if there is not financial equity between genders. And so it's this one area where there seems to be no disagreement, right? There seems to be absolutely no disagreement, but we still haven't provided the ability to get there, right? So obviously, like I live in a house that's probably very different than most houses, right? Dad stays home, mom goes to work, mom's always really busy, she doesn't always have time, you know, please ask dad about this. And mom also legitimately talks about investments and money all the time on TV, right? And so I think that, so my kids are definitions of little financial feminists because that's all they know, right? They may have to be exposed to the opposite to know that in the real world, both men and women should be involved in these discussions and should have opinions and so on and so forth. But I think it's incumbent on parents. It's incumbent on schools. Quite frankly, I view it as incumbent on me. Most of the clients that we work with are multi-generational, two, three, one, even four generations. And so part of what we do is when we're talking about significant wealth, which we are often talking about with my clients, part of what we get hired for and part of our responsibility is to make sure that the next generation is prepared emotionally and from an education and ability and sense of autonomy to step up to the plate and be a steward of capital for money that, you know, most of the way these families think about it is, is not theirs, but is continuous. And there is sort of noblesse oblige and responsibility embedded in that, that they need to be trained and equipped to deal with. And what is that initial, I guess, training process like? So I feel like I've learned so much from you in the 20 minutes that you've been been speaking, but in my other conversations with friends who, you know, will try to have conversations about investments. And a lot of times things are just going over my head and I have a finance background and it still is complicated uh, to me on, you know, best practices and what you should be doing because there's so many investment options right now. So how do you help your clients understand 
Yeah. Everything. <laughs> it's, it is overwhelming, right? And for all of the wonderful aspects of technology that we just talked about in terms of the ability to educate oneself, there are also overwhelming and sometimes paralyzing choices. That I understand. Now, the relationship that one has with their money can work a couple ways, right? There are many, many people who come to me and they say, here's a pot of money. Here are my goals. Here are my expectations. Just like I have an accountant that does my taxes and a lawyer that drafts my documents, I'm not expert in this. Actually, it even gives me a little angst, so it moves to the bottom of my to-do list. So I am going to outsource or I'm going to empower you to do it and I'm going to trust you. For some people, that's easier to do than for others, right? So then you can form a relationship where it's still incumbent upon me to educate you because if I'm not there or it's just the right thing to do because you know you have the rest of your life and I might not be there forever. I might not be the right person for you to be there forever. And inspiring confidence is part just learning and becoming more confident. There are other people who really come and they want to learn everything. And then the honest to God truth is it's a lot of time, right? And I have a team that we have many, many resources, some UBS resources, some not. We will spend hours and hours and hours with you going through things, uh, online seminars, live seminars. We will suggest books. We have you know, a little My Money Kit for three to seven-year-olds where you talk about you have, we send you three jars and you have the money that you save, the money that you put in the bank, and the money that you spend, right? So sort of starting from the beginning, but I think that, you know, the, the ability, the, as we talked about, the ability to use podcasts is huge. Um, oftentimes, it's just breaking it down into smaller pieces. I think what often happens, right, and I have many clients like this where let's say it's a couple, let's say it's the opposite of me, right? So let's say it's a financial professional who's a man and his wife and she and he, again, just like that initial survey that we discussed, you know, they probably met at work. They might have met at a university. They're both really, really smart people. And then, as happens to all of us, life gets crazy and you have a distribution of tasks that just let you live your life, right? So she often decides that she's going to take some time off from work to stay at home with the kids. He then continues work. He's continuing to be intellectually stimulated. He's continuing to make the investment decisions. And she's continuing to focus on making sure everything's working at home, making sure the family's working right. And then all of a sudden you get to a point where you have two really smart people. And again, this totally happens in my family. I met my husband in business school. Like he's well smarter than me. And you know, he was an investment banker. But at the end of the day, we don't necessarily always sit down and say, oh, I invested in this, or oh, I'm thinking of doing this because of the current interest rate environment, or oh, I'm worried that the composition of the Senate now is going to make it so that capital gains aren't going to be as efficacious, right? You just, you sit down, you eat, and you go to bed. And so you have to figure out some way when you're talking to that couple. First of all, I as the advisor have to figure out a way to ensure that that other spouse is brought into the conversation, right? The same thing that I do with my husband is what many of my clients do with their spouses, which is say, I say, would you, you know, 
maybe all three of us can get together. I think it would be great. I'd really love to, to know your spouse. I'd really love to sit down. I think they'd be interested in it. I know, I know, but just from a scheduling perspective, it's really crazy. And you know, why don't we just this time do it? Just us. And then this happens and this happens over and over again. So what you have to be able to do is to, oftentimes we will have separate meetings with each of those people because you will sit in a meeting with one and you realize that there are very disparate levels of understanding and comfort. And so you can't really have a productive meeting for person A that, as for person B. So oftentimes there will be the joint meeting or the, you know, I'm a very specific technical person and I want to go through each line item in my portfolio. And then the, can we go out to coffee and just talk about some of the things we discussed? And, and I will tell you, each and every time that both partners are involved, you get to a better place. You get to a better place from a relationship perspective, and you often get to a better place from an investment perspective as well. What about for women who are single and come to you and are looking to figure out how to build their wealth on their own? <laughs> yeah. So look, that's really important. A huge part of investment is this concept that I would call financial planning, right? And financial planning is really much more about meeting your goals and understanding your cash flow. And that is, that's really the first step for everybody, right? Because again, whether you're working minimum wage or whether you're making more money than you can spend, the first go back to those three, spend, save, and, and put away for a really rainy day. Basically, you only have two levers that you can pull ever. It's really simple, right? You have net contributions, which is how much are you taking in versus how much are you pushing out? And then if, if there is any extra, if there is any gravy in terms of your savings or your investment, how much risk are you willing to take? How much uncertainty are you willing to live with in order to grow that? And so if you only have, if you simplify it down to cash flow, you know, your bank account, your how much am I earning versus how much am I spending? And if I have gravy, you know, how much risk am I willing to take? What investments can I make that will allow that to grow? then you know, that's got to be the starting point for everybody. And so what you do in sort of a financial plan is you say, okay, so if those are the levers that I have, how do I think about increasing my inflows, right? And so that's, do I get another job? Do I, do I take on a consulting gig? Do I retire now or do I retire in 10 years? Do I, you know, and then the other side of that is the outflows. Do I pay for private school? Do I have another home? Do I have Disney Plus and Netflix, right? And so once you can understand that, then you can understand whether you basically have a surplus or a deficit. If we have a deficit, which most of this country does on a daily basis, and certainly now, you know, then the investment side is not where you need to focus on. You need to focus on this side. But if you have a surplus, then the question becomes from a financial planning perspective, what are your goals and what's their relative importance? Is it a different kind of education for your kids? Is it saving up to buy a home instead of being a renter? Is it retiring earlier rather than later? And that is the essence of how you plan and why you invest. And what all of the numbers tell us is that women especially once they have that surplus, tend to put that surplus in a checking or a savings account, 
whereas men seem to have a greater comfort level in taking market or investment risk. And what that means is, think about it now. If you put a dollar in a Chase banking account, you get a dollar back, whether that's tomorrow or a year from now. Now, I guess that's relatively better than if you do that same thing with a euro, where you put a euro in and you get 98 cents back. But there's a cost to being a constant bank product saver. And that cost is that while your money is sitting here losing purchasing power, losing value relative to the fact that inflation exists and things are more expensive, the person who's investing is, you know, you may have, right, you have a little bit of this, but over time, this is going like this. And so what that means is that there is this sort of penalty with not making a decision to invest. I want to talk about your team. I remember one of my first internships was actually at UBS. I was working in the wealth management department. And now looking back outside of a few interns, I can't remember seeing too many women there. So going back to your original point where there are very few women, I definitely experienced that. So I'd love to hear about your career journey and how you built your team and how you decide who joins the team. Yeah. So Again, I've always found it strange that there aren't more women in what I do, given, I actually wrote an article about it, given how female this business is in terms of true relationships and ability to empathize and get people to share information with you. I think the real reason why there aren't more women is an economic and sort of structural one, which is I work at a broker dealer and many people who are financial advisors do. There are other platforms you can work at, but when you work at a broker dealer, you work on commission. So if I show up and have a great year, then I earn exactly what the boys do. And that's one of the reasons that I decided to to be in this model. There's no, oh, well, we had a great year or you didn't, or politically you didn't really do what we hoped you would do. It just, it's, it's as transparent and meritocratic as it is. But that also means, and this is why I didn't make this move to a platform like this until I had both my children, that means that there's no such thing as maternity leave, right? And when you start, right, you know, I went from earning, when I moved my team to UBS, I went from earning real money to nothing, to earning minimum wage, you know, when I started. And so there is a structural issue in the industry that if you want to become a working mother, if you want to build a business, and you want to have children or have parents or have any sort of interest, right, outside of work, that's a tough thing to sort of reconcile. And so some firms have figured it out or trying to figure it out. But fundamentally, the beauty of being a financial advisor is that look around our country and look at people who have wealth. They are white and black and brown and female and male, and they're married to men and women, and they have children, and they don't have children, and they start companies, and they inherit it, and they are 90 years old, and they are 18 years old. And people work with people they like, trust, and don't lose the money in that order. So there should be as many looks and feels and flavors of financial advisors as there are people with money to manage. But that's not what you see. That's not what you saw during your internship right? You saw sort of the very typical Wall Street, white, middle-aged man. And so there has to be at some point, some way to incentivize 
more women, more people of color, more younger people to get into what I do because it's both the right thing to do and a creative for any bank who does it, quite frankly. And I know you were sharing earlier that philanthropy is something that's extremely important to you. And I would love for you to share a little bit more about how you've been able to incorporate that in, in your business and with your clients. Yeah. So philanthropy is a funny term, right? It can mean very different things to different people. And certainly over the last number of years, that has even grown in scope more because now we talk about investing with a gender lens or investing in social impact or environmental social governance investing. And so all of these things, in addition to just giving money or time away, are part of this. So whether I'm working with a you know, 15-year-old high school girl or whether I'm working with the way that I give time and money away to different organizations, or whether you're working with you know, a 50-year-old couple who give millions of dollars a year, we have this framework in my industry that I think works really well. It basically says each person has only three things that they can give. You can give your time, you can give your treasury, or you can give your talent. And I have many clients who say, you know what, I don't have any time. I don't even think I have talent. You know, I want to be impactful. How can I use this money to solve for a set social good, clean water, anti-violence against women? And that's pretty direct, right? So if you want to give your treasury, there are myriad ways to do it. But not all of us, A, have that to give or want to give that, right? For some people, it's more fulfilling and they view it as more impactful to give their time or their talent. So I'll tell you, for example, when I started to get involved about two years ago and I joined some boards we can talk about, I sort of sat down and had that same, what can I really provide these organizations that's valuable? And time was definitely off the list, right? That is not something that I have or can part with a moment of. Treasury, I'm not there yet. I'd love to be there, but I'm not there yet. Still building a business. Talent. Well, what am I good at? I'm good at networking. I'm good at providing narratives. I'm really good at strategizing. I raise money from individuals all the time. I find out what's important to them. Okay. So I decided that for me, I knew what I cared about, and that was girls and education globally. I knew that I didn't have a lot of time to give, which made the process or the funnel sort of smaller because I had to join an organization that I cared immensely about but wasn't having weekly meetings, quite frankly. And I had to join one that where I could actually feel as fulfilled that I was giving them something they needed in terms of my talent. And that's when I joined the board of Girl Rising, the thought being that this was an organization that was largely made up of people from the film world, started with the film, Girl Rising, and people from the girls' education and public health perspective. But there were not many people like me who could, in a way, sit in the middle of that and go, okay, I'm not a subject matter expert here, but what I can do is help you strategize how to increasingly raise funds and professionalize. And so with Girl Rising, the thing for me was I, and this goes back to the very beginning, the constant thing in my life has been women's access to education, right? That changed both my grandmother's lives, that changed my mother's life, and that has been a huge part of mine. And so 
you know, once I started to learn about the numbers in terms of, unfortunately, even in his own country now, when I first started to learn it wasn't such a, it was much more a quote unquote third world issue than it was a first world issue. But I started to realize how all of the issues that we talk about, violence against women, childhood marriage, trafficking, human trafficking, all came down to women not being educated and girls not having the autonomy and the authority and the ability to speak for themselves and do anything other than produce children. And so when I came in contact with Girl Rising, it was really, it was a meeting of the minds and it was at a perfect time. And really Girl Rising is all about getting all girls access to education in the understanding that all of these ecosystems are connected. And when you educate a girl, you change not only her destiny, but you change the destiny of her entire dynasty. And that was a really fascinating thing for me to be involved in because it was obviously personally hugely fulfilling. It allowed me to contribute a skill set that I use in a very narrow way for my own career for a long time. And it allowed me to learn hugely about sort of what was going on in the world and Interestingly enough, it has become very valuable in my practice because it simply the timing of Girl Rising entering the world and that message entering the world and social media and some of the, you know, initiatives from global organizations really sort of came to the forefront. Up next, how Allie recharges after work, her best hacks for building a career that is most aligned with your goals and why it is never too early to start networking. Allie, so Courtney and I talk about this all the time. Is it possible to have work-life balance, especially being an entrepreneurista? So I think balance is bullshit. But here's the issue. I am greatly, greatly fueled, proud. Like, I love what I do. And I love what I've built. And I think it makes me a better spouse and a better friend and a better parent. So I think you have to not apologize for it. What I would say is I believe that over an entire lifetime, you can optimize everything, but I don't think you can do it at the same time. So the way that I like to think about this is for me, at least there are four things in my life that are very important to me and take an immense amount of time and energy. They are my business, my family, my friends, and myself. I can't think of a time where I felt awesome about the way I was treating each of those four priorities, right? I think you have to make a very conscious decision about at which points in time, eras and epics of your life, you are focusing on what, and you have to sort of own the prioritization of it. So what I will say is that I have been an awesome mom when I can and when I choose to be, but it is not in uh, quantity, it's in quality. I do everything for work in my team and my clients, and that's just who I am and what fuels me, and you know, I can never not do that. I'm usually okay about doing things for myself. The friendship thing falls out for me a lot. My friendships, as I have gotten older and as I have gotten more sort of senior and as I have become more entrepreneurial, are really the thing that I miss the most. I don't have the time 
or the energy to nurture them. What has happened as a result, which is also sort of a lovely thing, is that my friends of my 40s are very different than my friends of my 30s or my friends of my 20s. They are largely people who have similar demands on their time. And so we spend less time together, but time is really meaningful and effective and important. And I need to have people in my life who, unlike my clients and my team and my children, are not particularly needy. And that's just simply the truth. Most of my female friends, I would say, actually fall off more on themselves. I don't know what it is about me that I feel always entitled to. And I'm not talking about things like getting my hair done or getting my teeth whitened because that's honestly part of my job. Like that's part of being on TV. That's part of sort of having a persona. I'm talking about like sitting down and reading a book or going for a hike or the fact that I will say to you one of the other questions, which I was like reading through earlier and was super embarrassed not to have an answer to I, I don't read books that aren't fiction. I don't read real books. I don't read investment books. I don't read history books. I don't read political books. And I never listen to podcasts. And it's because I spent all of my life with so much coming at me that when I do have downtime, it needs to be fluff and it needs to be you know stuff that I don't have to think about. Because the thing about me that I it took me a while to understand is, I am in a world and in an environment that is all about being out there and networking and socializing and going to conferences and walking in the room like you own it. And, but I'm not actually an extrovert, right? So I am what I call a self-taught extrovert. And I think that the difference there is that introvert extrovert really has to do with what energizes you, right? So when I sit down and read a, a book for a day or do a crossword and a spelling bee anagram, I leave that day clean, fresh, and with energy. If you ask my husband to sit down and do that for a day, and we just went through quarantine, for example, he is like sort of sad and depressed because he gets energy from being out and talking to other people and blah, blah, blah. I don't, right? I have taught myself because I do enjoy it, but it is very draining, you know, doing this podcast or being on television or having a two-hour meeting and asking people intimate questions about their life and their wants. And so I need to focus on me to make all those other things we talked about happen and successful. If you could give our entrepreneurs to audience one essential career tip, what would it be? You have to network. I don't know what it is about this concept of networking, and this is gender neutral, that like people feel like your first couple jobs, you put your head down, you do a great job, you're going to get noticed, and then you earn the right to, in the old world, network and go to coffees and meet people and find out about other you know, positions or jobs and start to understand the politics of the culture around you. You need to do it on day one because it is not always true that you get recognized for your hard work. And if we all understand that the majority of what we do and will do going forward, given the extent of technological innovation, has to do with humanity and EQ skills, having a network, whether it's a peer network, whether it's mentors, having a nurturing network is key. And the biggest mistake that people make is feeling like that's something you earn the right to do when you're a 30-year-old SVP. Start soon. So the other thing is keeping a 
positives, negatives, plus minuses, energize, deplete you list. For me, keeping that list and iterating it throughout my whole career helped me to decide what jobs to take, what moves to make, what to do and what not to do. And the way that this list evolved for me is at the beginning, as my exposure was less, as my self-awareness was less, the lists look like positives, like working with individuals who make their own decisions, not individuals who make decisions for the end client. Plus, like doing different things every day, like traveling, negatives, or things that drain me, standing at a computer all day looking at screens, never understanding the impact on the end client, working with the same people every day, right? Now, what those things helped me to do was ultimately make decisions like when I was asked to move from where I was in the private bank at Lehman to running a business on a huge trading floor. And I said, no way, that's not for me. I looked down my list, right? And when I looked down my list and it said, working with the people making the exact decision, oh, well, this was in a market that was what's called an over-the-counter market. So it didn't trade. It wasn't a monotonous day. It wasn't you have an open, you have a this. It was always open. It was more consultative. It meant you were working with different people all the time, right? And so using this, and now when I think about, and I could show you my own list today, right, it equally applies to my personal life and my philanthropic life as it does to my work life, right? And one of the things that we didn't talk about was sort of COVID and the pandemic. And one of the things that has been the hardest for me is that I worked so hard to get all those things on my plus side and now I'm looking at you in a room where I sit all day by myself and stare at screens, right? It's everything that doesn't work for me, that totally drains me. Now, the good news is hopefully it's temporary, right? I don't think that my industry or I don't foresee a time where my team just says, oh, great, now we're all you know, doing everything virtually. And it also, in a way, it helps me to sort of give myself a break sometimes when I go, I just can't do this today and I'm just feeling down and I'm just... Well, yeah, of course, because everything on your depletes me right page is exactly what you're doing right now, Allie. You can't go out and network. You can't, you know, look at other people. You can't, it, all these things. And so that's really hard. That's really hard. But I would say, give yourself a framework to make decisions. And again, it's, you know, positives, negatives, things that I'm good at, things that I struggle with, things that energize me, things that deplete me. And, you know, use that for your relationships, use that for the jobs you take, use that when you're deciding whether you should go to a graduate school program. To me, it sort of synthesizes down who you are and iterates as you get to know more things and try more things. Yeah, that is such good advice. Thank you for sharing that. And finally, Allie, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? Firstly, I would like to say I read your definition and I think it is fascinating. I love it. It's right on. Um, so one of the things I say about my business is that it is made and built for badass women, but the S's are, are dollar signs. And that's, I think, what it is. One of my sons has a little friend who always says, I'm classy, sassy, and a little badassy. <laughs> to me, that's being an entrepreneurista, right? Because I think the whole point of the sass, there's a little irreverence to it. The badassy is you're pushing, you're constantly, constantly pushing, you're falling and you're getting up. 
And the classy part is even maybe the most important part is that you're doing it with grace. You're recognizing that your failures are just as important, if not more important, that your successes and that you can have humility about it. I love that. And so to me, it's a classy, sassy, and a little badassy. I love it. Yes. Allie, thank you so much for sharing your journey and story and all of your incredible financial advice and wisdom. Where can everyone find you and follow you on social media? And then if someone's interested in potentially working with you, what's the best way to reach out? Absolutely. So I am embarrassed to tell you lovely ladies that I am a social media challenge, I guess would be the correct terminology, but I have recently joined Instagram and I am Financial Feminist NYC. That's followed you. Ah, yay! I love it. Um, my kids get very excited when I get new followers. <laughs> I'm apparently the most famous McCartney they know because they, of course, don't know Paul. <laughs> so Financial Feminist NYC. I'm on LinkedIn. And the easiest thing to do is if you just look me up, you'll come to my team's webpage. And, you know, I'm in an industry where everything is pretty public. And I love it when people reach out. I gotten a lot of wonderful client relationships. I also have a, a policy, which is I will give any woman 15 minutes of my time. I get a little bit of flack for specifically directing that towards women. But, you know, look, you don't, my life and my career is all a result of the karma of the things that I care about and the people that I care about coming into sort of the, coming under the microscope and becoming culturally and socially relevant during my, you know, this sort of interesting point in this time in life, which I'm sure is not particularly different than how you ladies must be the, view the world, right? And so what I will say is, you know, I have never regretted giving somebody 15 minutes to talk about their career, their thoughts. I have gotten my biggest clients. I have been introduced to other people. I'm a big proponent of give, 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 get. Absolutely. Well, Allie, thank you so much for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.